Church, why don't you turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 7. Nehemiah, chapter 7. We are more than halfway uh, done with this book, which seemed to be pretty quick, didn't it? Not quick enough? All right, well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see about that tonight. Uh, no, if you would open your Bibles there, uh, we will begin reading. As I've already said, though, we are not going to um, read every bit of this book or every bit of this chapter. Uh, we're going to read just a couple of sections. We've seen already the Lord's blessing upon his servant Nehemiah and his servants and the people of Israel and that they were sent and commissioned to rebuild the wall, the gates of Jerusalem, um, and they accomplished that. Uh, feet. They were able to rebuild the wall, remember, in 52 days with the, the, the gates being completed as well. And now what we're going to read is the events immediately following uh, the completion of the building of the walls. And so uh, we're going to read a couple of uh, verses here. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's very, very long, 73 verses. Um, we're going to explain the vast majority uh, that we're going to skip is really uh, actually what we're going to preach about in tonight's sermon, okay? Uh, that is, um, it's really the same information that's found in Ezra chapter 2 uh, of the register of the returnees of the first return of Zerubbabel. So I'm going to skip the list of names uh, and get to the very end of the chapter when we get that point, okay? So we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 6, then there's going to be a long list and then we'll finish in 73, Okay? Here's what the precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says to us, his children. Now, when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, <clears throat> then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his house, his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. And then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. And then there's this long list of registered names, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the temple servants, all of various sorts. And then we get to the end in verse 73, and it says this, now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious, loving God. Father, you are an almighty God. You are a holy and righteous God. We thank you that you have drawn near to us in Christ Jesus, to draw us near to you in Christ Jesus, that you may in return draw near to us in Christ Jesus. We pray now that we have, as we have heard your word read, um, that this word would dwell richly within us, 
Father, that we would not prove to be forgetful hearers, but by your grace and for your glory and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be transformed into effectual doers of the word and the will of God. So, Father, to that end, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to speak to us in and through this, your holy word, asking you to do it in the name of your holy son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, you know, I think, I I talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. I think it is a lamentable situation when so many of our evangelical churches uh, really pay relatively little attention to the Old Testament. And I, I want to I hash out a couple principles here before we jump into this text. In fact, have you ever heard this saying, I'm a New Testament Christian? The, the people call themselves New Testament Christians. You realize that when you do that, you're cutting out two-thirds of the Bible, right? I, I, I think there are a lot of people who are well-intentioned when they say this, uh, but they're using the wrong terminology and language, Because what we need to understand is that we're not New Testament Christians, we're whole Bible Christians. (laughs) But we don't live under the old covenant any longer, we live under the new covenant now. It's very important to maintain that. And this is something that I was reading this week and thinking about that the Apostle Paul actually Uh, gives the relevance of the Old Testament revelation to uh, the New Testament saints. In fact, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, and I want you just to listen to what Paul says about the Old Testament. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, notice, by fathers, he's talking about those Old Testament Israelites that were brought out of the captivity under, in Egypt under the, uh, the ministry of Moses. But what does he say? He doesn't say my fathers. He says our fathers. And what's interesting about that is who's Paul writing to here? He's writing to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, included not only Jewish people, but Gentile believers as well. Because, friends, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become a member of the spiritual Israel, which is organically connected to the old covenant Israel that was brought out of bondage of of Egypt by the Lord through the ministry of Moses. So we're connected to spiritual Israel there. He's, He's teaching Gentiles their church history. And this is what he says. He goes on to say, verse 2, "...and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea." And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. We know that story well. He saw in that rock, out of which was when smitten comes the water that preserved the life of the Israelites. Remember, it was a type and picture of Christ. He draws the parallels between the old covenant And they're eating and drinking of the spiritual food God provided and the new covenant Christians. And Paul goes on to say this. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. The 40 years, remember the wandering under the curse of judgment because they didn't trust and obey God. Now then, here are the key words in this text. Look what Paul says. 
New Testament Christians he's writing to, right? These New Testament Christians, this New Covenant Christians, he says, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And look at this. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this revelation of the Old Testament was not just intended for the old covenant saints who would receive it. But it is intended for us new covenant saints to draw out important spiritual new covenant principles by which we live our kingdom lives. And and I wanted to say that because this passage here in Nehemiah has in it some of those new covenant principles. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking here, right? What in the world kind of principles can we gather from a list of names? How in the world can we do this? Well, on the surface, reading this long list of names that we skipped over tonight, it, it might seem boring to you. You may think that this list, it has no purpose. There's no truth for you and I to gather from texts like this. Church family, think again. Because because these Jews that were listed here by Nehemiah in chapter 7, they served as God's bridge from the defeats of the past to the victorious hope of the future. I want you to hear why. These names listed here, these are a, a living link that connected the historic past with the prophetic future and made it possible for a little baby boy named Jesus Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Where, okay, now, now I'm even something more. Where is the connection to Jesus in this list of names. Well, let's look at this together. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 7 verses 6 and 7, notice this text. It says, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity who came with Zerubbabel. Now, we did a series not too long ago, probably about a year and a half ago, actually, through the Gospel of Matthew on Wednesday night. And we looked particularly at the women and the genealogy of Jesus. But the list, Matthew starts off his Gospel with one of these lists that we shake our heads and say, whoa, just a list of names. The boring section of Scripture here. But I want you to notice now, Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. Here's what the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew writes in his gospel telling of the good news. He says this, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, and Mathon, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Okay, let me just tell you this. 
This listing of names in Nehemiah 7 is as important as your salvation. Through these faithful men and women that God listed here would come the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This passage is as much the word of God as John 3.16 and we have to view scripture like this. And I love this because we, we would never know that in the natural man, right? We would never just read a list of names and think they have any connection with Jesus. But that's how I, why I love that the, the best interpreter for scripture is always scripture, right? To help us see the important connection. Jesus was going to come from this list of names. This is a direct genealogy of, of the coming Messiah. It's wonderful to think about. So let's now examine this list and do a little bit of principle talk. We've seen how it's important, why it's important directly because of its tie to Jesus. We've seen now how the Old Testament is a a model for us to be able to draw out principles for our instruction in the New Testament. Let's break it down a bit. So what we have here is we have 10 different groups of people recorded by Nehemiah in this census. And as you can tell from the list, uh, we're not going to go through each of these uh, extensively. You can write them down if you want. You can ask me to email my outline if you'd want. But here's what we have. First, we have leaders who return with Zerubbabel in 538 BC. That's in verse 7. Then we begin listing the different families and clans. Then third, we list the people by villages. So it kind of starts out, all right, these are the people, the, the, the first people that came with Zerubbabel on the first journey back. Now let's begin listing people by their families and their clans that they belong to. And okay, are we missing anybody? Well, let's, let's now begin listing by villages to make sure we don't miss anyone. And then what you really have after that is you've got all the different uh, workers in the temple that make up five groups. You have uh, the priest, uh, you have the Levites, You have the temple singers, which, amen, even in the Old Testament, they sang. Uh, And and you have gatekeepers, and you have a long, extensive list of temple servants. These were people that were, of course, set apart to do uh, Old Covenant work in the temple. And then finally, you have two very interesting lists to conclude. You have, uh, number nine, priests who could not prove their genealogy, which tends to be a problem. In verse 10, you have miscellaneous servants. Okay, Uh, so now we've seen this as the list of of this breakdown of what we see in Nehemiah 7. Friends, I, I know this passage has to seem boring to you on the surface, but... This is something that fascinates me. Our God is a God of intricate order. There's always a purpose behind everything he does. He orders people, places, and events to infinite detail. And I really do think that when we're spirit-filled Bible students, we are going to do our best to try and pay attention to even what we consider mundane and boring sections of Scripture, for it is here that God often uh, reveals a ruby to those who are diligent, a treasure, a gift, and such things. And so... uh, I want to set the context as a reminder here to show you why Nehemiah 7 is a treasure. Let's remember where we've been so far. What's the context of this passage? Well, 
In, in chapters one through six, remember, we, we have the record of Nehemiah's call, who's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful emperor and king on the planet. He's called to go lead the brigade to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, of his homeland, his country. Remember, we've had three of those returns so far. Zerubbabel came back to restore temple order and worship in Jerusalem. Ezra came back and failed absolutely miserably to rebuild the walls. And now Nehemiah leads the charge on this third one. And really, verses one or chapters one through six is the story of how he rebuilds the wall in the midst of terrible uh, difficulty and uh, enmity between uh, the world. And secondly, now, I want us to see this. In, in chapter seven, we see Nehemiah doing three things. Nehemiah is going to provide leadership, which is what the first sermon I wrote about this text was, provide leadership and gatekeepers uh, to guard what God had given them to keep and maintain the work of the ministry. He prompted Nehemiah now to take a census because this census helped to determine the purity of the priesthood. And when you hear Brother Brock preach Nehemiah 8 next week, you'll know why. Because by uh, building the wall, once it was built, once leaders were established, once the priesthood was purified, this paved the way for a national revival in Nehemiah chapter 8. So, so these may just be names to you, but to God, they are a vital link to revival and to the coming Messiah. So it's my prayer that the reason God has built First Baptist Church of Grey Gables here, the reason he's provided leadership here, the reason why he's kept a strict census here and made the pulpit clean here in our local church is because we ourselves, Lord willing and praying to God that we do, going to experience a tremendous revival. And so from this text, I want to get to the principles. There are six and they are quick. I want to see several truths that we can consider uh, in this text today. What do we do when we come to these lists and how can we think about them in a biblical light? Here are six principles that I think are going to help us here. Number one, people are important to God. When you look at a list like this, you must understand that people are important to God. See, Nehemiah 7, as we said, it's more than a mere list of people. Each one of these people uh, were important to the kingdom and work of God. These are not just names, but people, souls, individuals who were important to God. Their names have become a part of, of God-breathed scripture, memorializing forever their trust in the Lord. Remember, think about this. These people had been in Babylonian captivity. In the Bible, Babylon is always a picture, a type of, of sin, it pictures a place of slavery to ungodliness under the rule of ungodly rulers. Well, in Nehemiah 7, God lists all those that he brought out of Babylon because they are precious to him. They mean something to him. The Bible tells us Christians that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Each of us that have accepted Jesus Christ have been delivered from our own personal Babylon, from a life of slavery to sin. God is keeping a census of all that have come out of bondage to sin. God has meticulously recorded the names of his children. 
None of, of, of our names will be forgotten if we're in him. We remember this. We looked at this not too long ago from John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Uh, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I don't know about you, but every time I go to the movies, uh, sometimes they'll do something with special movies like this. I think mostly with superhero movies or uh, maybe Star Wars. I'm not drawing a blank right now. But they'll, they'll add a little bit of something uh, that are called after the end credits, right? Uh, there's just like a tiny scene, a little something you can watch at the end. But what do you have to do in order to get there? You have to look through a list of names that's absolutely ginormous. And you're thinking to yourself the entire time, who are these people? Are all of these people going to see this movie and just looking intently for their own name, right? Uh, do, I'm sure they have relatives, and if they're uh, obviously in Hollywood, their relatives probably aren't from Hollywood, and so they're probably looking to see so-and-so who's like the third director of photography assistant guy who goes and gets the water for everyone who's listed in the credits and saying, there he is, there's the name, I've seen it. Listen, we know that reading a list of names may be boring. We would never watch a movie just so we can read all the names on the credits, right? But not if your name is one of the names on the list. It's not boring anymore for that. What a joy it is to know that our names are written in heaven. I can't wait to hear the master read my name one day. Call my name. So I love this. People are important to God. These names are important to him because people are important to him. Secondly, the second principle we can see here from God's word is that God will never forsake you or his plans. God will never forsake you or his plans. God kept his work going through a long period of slavery, through the worst of times, the hardest of opposition. We've seen that in several texts already through this story. Remember the first group of Jews returned from Babylon under Zerubbabel in 538 BC and they restored the temple and worship. We saw that Ezra then 80 years later came and, uh, with another group of Jews and they failed at rebuilding the walls. Well now, 14 years after that, Nehemiah returned and successfully rebuilt the walls and gates in only 52 days amidst violent opposition from the enemy. That, that tells me something, church. That tells me that regardless for us as God's new covenant people, however tough it gets, however long it takes, or the degree of opposition that we have, God is going to accomplish his work in and through his church. In the times of extreme opposition, what a comfort it is to know that God knows my name and knows exactly where I am. The promise of God is and always will be one of the most comforting verses in all of scripture, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. He himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I forsake you so that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? 
So not only do we see principles here in this long list of names that people are important to God, that God will never forsake you or his plans, he will accomplish his work. But third, I want you to see here, God keeps an account of his servants. This is something that is equal parts comforting and convicting. Okay, I'm going to give you a warning here. God keeps an account of his servants. Getting out of Babylon was not all that was recorded. We see in our text here that God knew the names, God knew the numbers in each family, the towns that people came from, how many horses, mules, camels, and donkeys that were there, and how much gold and silver were given and who exactly gave it. We know from Nehemiah chapter 3 that God kept a list of all those who worked, remember, and, and where they worked and how much work they did. That tells us something from this text, doesn't it? Not only does God know and have recorded all of those that are his, he knows everything there is to know about his servants. He knows what you have done for him. He knows where you are, where you've gone, how much you've given. God is keeping a record on every Christian. And one day, real soon... You and Jesus are going to go over that record on the judgment seat. Now, let me, let me say, this is not determining of your salvation, right? Your salvation rests in, the, in the, the blood and sacrifice, substitutionary atonement of King Jesus, yes? But what you've done with that salvation, how you've served him in that salvation, is something that you and Jesus are going to go over. Does that scare you a little bit? I'm so glad that at that time we'll be fully glorified and in his presence, right? That we won't have sinful fear about that, but we'll have rest and comfort in knowing our Savior and not be ashamed of such things. Because right now, if I had to do that, I'd probably be ashamed. Even as a pastor, I'm not going to play that pastor card on that day because there are so many opportunities I know that I miss on a continual basis. Let me tell you, I, I had a class in seminary where all I had to do to get a hundred in the class was sit down with the professor and watch one of my sermons with him. And I took a 95 in that class because I could not bear the thought of having to sit down and be judged and critiqued in that way. But friends, Jesus has a record of everything you've ever done to him and not in an unloving way, not a way again that's determining your salvation, but Jesus will hold you accountable to what you've done with this salvation. I should have preached that and then put like the nursery list like up, right? That probably would have been, maybe not, okay, um, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. Well, you know. Um, it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. Uh, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That ought to be... Uh, convicting and, and uh, a comfort to you. Don't be content just to be set free from Babylon. Don't be content just to be set free from sin, though that is the main source of your contentment. Let the, the fear of the Lord persuade you to live in holiness, to serve him. King Jesus is keeping a record 
with your name on it. What will that name say? What will be the list of things that you've done with this wonderful salvation? Okay, that's the hardest one. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Number four is this. The fourth principle we can gain from this long list of names is this. Culture changes. God is changeless. Isn't that the, the truth? We, we love to talk about how the culture is shifting and changing before our very eyes. But I want you to see this. The organization of the family by unit of the heads of the household, right? The fathers. This is something that had been overshadowed in the wicked culture of Babylon. It wasn't deemed as important there. Babylonian culture imposed an ungodly line of authority over the home. Fathers were unable to exercise their God-given authority over their families while under the rule of the Babylonians. But what do we see in Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2? We learn that one of the first things restored after coming out of Babylon was the headship of the father in the household. See, the most important question of this census in Babylon and returning to Jerusalem was, who's your father? We see that because everyone is called the children of, the children of over and over and over again. Friends, can I tell you something? Today, we are surrounded by Babylon. In our Western culture, it often flies in the face of biblical headship and authority. And blame whoever you want to blame. You can blame liberalism or third wave feminism or just liberal theology or the fact that men are sinful and hate God apart from God changing their hearts to do so. Blame whoever you want. But they all challenge now in our culture the biblical roles of manhood and male leadership in the home. But friends, though the culture may change, God never changes. God never will. The first thing reestablished after Babylon was the headship of the father over the family unit. And if you have come out of Babylon, if you've been set free from the slavery of Babylon, if you've been saved, fathers, God wants you to be a man and be the leader of your home. He wants you to be the physical leader, the financial leader, the spiritual leader, and the leader of discipline and correction in the home. This is something that is just littered all throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not as if... Uh, men are more valuable than women. They are equal in value, but they're different in roles. Fathers, you are the head of your home. That is God's order for the household. The way of Babylon was an ungodly line of authority. It was one of broken headship and violated authority. But the mark of a God of order is an ordered family. What a comfort to know that no no matter how many social norms may wax and wane, God's standard for the order of the home is forever and it's settled in heaven. And, and friends, we have to understand this as a church. Men, you are to be the spiritual leaders over your wives. 
You are to love them, serve them sacrificially as Christ loved and served the church. Which means it should be a vehicle for you to receive the sacrifice and how Jesus laid down his life for you and intercedes for you and prays for you and serves you and blesses you. And you take those things, Father, and you lay them upon your wife and your family. It doesn't just stop with you. You are a fire hydrant of of bursting forth with blessings that you've received from God to pour over your family. In service and in sacrifice and in love. That's the way God ordered the household. And I, uh, my mentor Mark Tussauds used to say this all the time. So go the men, so go the families, so go the community, so go the church. And I praise God that we do have some wonderful men in this church. But let us never be settled. It is a tough and difficult task to be the head of the household. Shower that love upon your family because this is the order God would have us to take part in. The last two principles I want to gather from this text really are kind of more applications for us to think about. I want you to, when you think about this particular kind of text, when you think about this particular genealogy text, I want you to to ask this question. I want you to be sure of your genealogy. Are you sure of your genealogy? I, I pray that you are. Be sure, and here's what I mean by that. I want you to look at verses 61 and 62 of our text. We didn't read those, but we're going to read them now. And and look what this particularly says uh, in chapter 7. These were they who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Hashah, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer. But they could not show their father's houses or their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekodah, 642. Okay, once again, what in the world does that have to do with anything in this text? Well, I want you to see a couple things here. While in Babylon, the fathers of these priests intermarried with Gentiles, and as a result, many of the priests in Nehemiah's day could not prove their genealogy. Why was that important? Well, because if you know anything about the Old Testament, a priest, in order to be a priest of God, you had to be able to trace your ancestry back to Aaron. And and there are several points of truth here in this text. The first is that the context is priests who were disqualified from ministry. See that. The context here is priests who are disqualified from ministry. The Bible is very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 what God's qualifications are for a New Testament pastor. And church family, if a man does not meet every one of those qualifications, number one, do not ordain him, and number two, do not keep him as pastor. And note something. You may have missed it. One of the priests who could not prove his genealogy was a man known as Deliah. This man's name is also found in Nehemiah 6 verse 10. This was Shemaiah's father. You remember Shemaiah from last week? You remember we talked about the Wally Coyote Roadrunner scenario? They kept trying to trick uh, Nehemiah and they failed. Shemaiah was the one that was hired by Sanballat and Tobiah to prophesy a false prophecy to Nehemiah so that in fear he might forsake and give up the work of God. But thankfully, Nehemiah, of course, discerned that God had not sent him. 
Shemaiah was a second generation hireling. A second generation unqualified priest. He was called by his daddy and not God. And friends, let me just shout a warning out to you. If, if you are involved in a church or ever going to be involved in a church where a man is not called by God, then you're going to be led astray. That's how it works. The same thing happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that if the priesthood was corrupt, its influence would ultimately destroy the moral and spiritual fiber of the nation. And friends, unfortunately in our country, we've got a lot of men who have never been called by God who are leading the quote-unquote way in quote-unquote evangelical Christianity. And it is why we're going towards a decay of spiritual moral fiber in this land. May God heal us of that and send called men to lead the charge. Likewise, if a man is scripturally unfit to be pastor, yet is given that position, the whole church will be devastated. A man in the pulpit must be able to prove his spiritual ancestry and meet the qualification the master has laid down for office. Second thing we learn from number five, this fifth principle of making sure you're called, is I believe this to be true. I believe that there are probably some of us here, even tonight, who cannot prove our genealogy. It's not your first birth that matters, church family. It's the second birth. My prayer is that every one of us would be able to trace your genealogy back to the cross of Jesus Christ, or you will be rejected one day. John chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Some of you here this, this evening even maybe are intermarried with the world. You are in love with the world. You are of the world. There is no record of your name in the Lamb's book of life. When you trace your genealogy back, it goes back to the God of this world, the devil, but not to Christ. You are not his child if that's the case. And friends, I want us all to be sure that God is your father through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. My heart's desire that we'd all make sure and know our genealogy. My final question, final application, final principle we can gather from this list of names is this. It's a question. Do you have any spiritual offspring? When I see a list of names like this, I can't help but wonder and think about this particular question. I know that this is a, this is a, a physical list of human descendants, certainly, and that every one of us really trace our spiritual genealogy back to Jesus Christ. But remember, these people in Nehemiah 7, they played a part. Their obedience led to the birth of the Messiah. So I want to ask you, has your obedience ever produced any spiritual offspring? Have you ever had the absolute privilege to lead another person to faith in Jesus Christ? Will there be any record under your name of souls that have been won to Christ? Obviously, we know that God changes the hearts, but friends, this ties back to our service. Do you have any spiritual offspring? I can tell you the greatest joy in heaven will be to have had part in someone getting to Jesus. That's why, man, when I see some of these saints of old that I love and respect so much, and I, I know they've shared the gospel and led so many to Christ. That's, that's why 
Though I, I selfishly long for them to remain here on earth, boy, the day they go to heaven, it's going to be a joyous occasion because they will get to see spiritual offspring that God decided to use them in the telling of the gospel in such ways. But on the flip side, I'd have to say, we don't view it this way. I think one of the greatest tragedies of modern day evangelical Christianity will be never having personally been involved in the leading of a soul to the Lord. I, that just burdens me. And, and I, I, there are things I know we can probably be doing better in evangelical training here. But friends, if that's a desire that you have to lead someone to Christ, let's just begin tonight by praying for an opportunity. That we'd be praying for boldness, we'd pray for the Spirit of God to work. It starts with a desire. The question is, is there even a desire for you to have spiritual offspring? I pray that's okay. So hopefully you've gained some insight and some joy into seeing how something like a list of this genealogy, particularly this list in Nehemiah 7, has tremendous principles for us as, the, as, as God's new covenant kingdom, Right? That we know in these very things that people are important to God, that, that God will never forsake us or the work of his kingdom, that God keeps a account and record of his servants, that culture may change, it may wax and wane, be the same today and different tomorrow, but God absolutely never changes. And then we need to, to think about whether we're sure our genealogy is traced back to the cross of Christ and ask the question, do we have any spiritual offspring Begin praying that the Lord would provide us with such things. I pray you've been encouraged by the word of God tonight. Let's stand together and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, marvelous word. Lord, as we consider um, the gift that you've given us in your word, and Lord, even texts that on the outside look difficult and hard to understand, and we may question the purpose, would you... Lord, just enlighten our eyes to receive your word that we would see the glorious purpose of every, uh, every dot of scripture. Lord, that the scriptures themselves, as we've been looking at Wednesday nights, they bring glory to you. Lord, even Nehemiah 7 would help us take some of the principles we learned here tonight, really challenge ourselves to live for you and your service so we might be better fit in a new covenant community to do the continued work of building the walls of the kingdom of God. We thank you for the example you set before us in Nehemiah and the Old Testament saints, as Paul said, are for our instruction. Lord, not just in negative examples, but in positive examples as well. Lord, you're so faithful to work through your word, and we thank you for how you do that continually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.